Well, good morning, Sovereign Grace. It's good to see you all here this morning. It's a great privilege to be back with everybody. Happy Father's Day to all you fathers out there. Scripture tells us to give honor to whom honor is due, and we are very thankful for you fathers and the vital roles that you have played in our lives, and so we're very thankful for you. May the Lord sustain you that you might continue to lead your families well by God's grace. I'd like to draw your attention now to the word of the Lord as we find it in the 119th Psalm. We'll be looking at the cough stanza, no, not <coughs> cough, but the 11th letter in the Hebrew alphabet. This is the 11th stanza in this beautiful psalm. And as a reminder, or if you're a first-time visitor with us this morning, perhaps for the first time, I want to let you know that this is an alphabetic acrostic psalm, which means that there are 22 stanzas, and each stanza represents a different letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And the beautiful thing about that is that the first word in each verse starts with that letter that's being represented. So here in this stanza, each of the eight verses, the first word there begins with the letter Kof. We don't see that in the English, obviously, but it's beautiful to behold in the Hebrew. But I'm going to read for you verses 81 through 88 of Psalm 119, reminding you, as always, that this is the word of the living God. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I become like a wineskin in the smoke. Yet I have not forgotten your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth. But I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways higher than our ways, and your thoughts than our thoughts. And so we acknowledge together that we are completely incapable of rightly understanding your word unless your spirit illumines our hearts and our minds. Therefore, we pray that you would use your word that goes out from your mouth so that it would not return to you empty, but that it may accomplish that which you purpose by your spirit and may succeed in the thing for which you sent it. Do this in our midst now, we pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, as a pastor, I can't tell you how many times I've sat with people when they've just received absolutely devastating news. Devastating news that has completely flipped their world upside down. The way they were thinking about their life, the way they were thinking about the direction of their life, they're hit with this news and they're just wrecked. Perhaps it's the news that a loved one or a friend has unexpectedly died or received a diagnosis of a terminal illness. 
Perhaps they've received the news that their spouse has been cheating on them or has an addiction that they were never aware of. And as this news sets in and they start to think of the ramifications for their life and they begin to grieve the losses, the questions on their part begin to pour forth from their mouths even as the tears stream down their face. Why? Why is the Lord doing this? How is this serving His purpose for my good and for His glory? What is He up to? And why does He feel so distant? Why, when I need Him most, the comfort of His Word, the nearness of His presence, why does He feel further away now than He ever has in my Christian life? Why? Pastorally, there aren't easy answers to these questions. And pastorally, the best thing to do is to sit in the silence, sit in the grief, and weep with them. But here's the reality, brothers and sisters. This is coming for each and every one of us. This is a normal part of the Christian experience in a fallen world. Some have referred to this as a dark night of the soul, when we're overwhelmed with grief. And really, that's exactly what we have the psalmist experiencing here in this stanza. It's the very middle of the entire psalm. There's 176 verses in Psalm 119. If you divide that by two, you get 88. That's the very last verse in this stanza. And it truly is the low point. The psalmist in this psalm is at his lowest point in his struggle with his own sin, with understanding God's ways, understanding the pursuit of his enemies, so that the Baptist preacher C.H. Spurgeon can call this, rightly so, the midnight of the psalm. And so understanding that we're going to experience this, even as the psalmist is, it's helpful for us to understand we're being prepared for this by God's word. Perhaps you're coming out of a season that you would characterize as a dark night of the soul, or you've experienced it in the past, and so you need to rightly process it and think about it. This psalm helps. Perhaps you're in the middle of a dark night of the soul right now, even as you're hearing these words. And so you need to get your bearings to think rightly about it. This psalm helps. Or perhaps you're new in the faith, and you have no idea what I'm talking about. God bless you. This is coming. I don't know when and to what degree, but this psalm is here to help prepare you for that. Not only for yourself, but so that you can walk alongside others lovingly and understandingly and wisely as they go through these very difficult seasons. And so this psalm prepares us for this time period. And it does that by helping us understand three realities of the dark night of the soul or this season in our lives. Three realities. First of all, it helps us understand our plight. Our plight. And our plight is threefold. There's three aspects to it. There's three subpoints to the first point. And the first aspect of our plight is our own weakness. Body and soul, we're fallen. Body and soul, we're finite. And so we're subject to change. And this causes us great consternation in this life because our weaknesses are constantly exposed. The second aspect of our plight is that God's promises seem to linger when we need them to be fulfilled most urgently. And so we grow weary in waiting, and we wonder when. It's the second aspect of our plight, that God's promises seem to linger. And thirdly, the third aspect, is that our enemies seem to prevail over us when we're in the dark night of the soul. 
They seem to get the upper hand. And so it's like a wave after wave of just grief and loss being overwhelmed by our plight. Second of all, though, a child of God's natural response to that is to cry out to the Lord and to plead before him. And so secondly, what we'll look at is our plea, our prayer, our complaining before the Lord as it were for him to fulfill his promises and comfort us. And then thirdly, we'll see that even in the midst of our plight and in the midst of our pleadings, we will see that the Lord causes us to persevere by his grace. We'll look thirdly at our perseverance and how the Lord upholds us through the dark night of the soul by his steadfast love. And if you notice, I didn't give you all the verses that correspond to each of those points, did I? You want to know why? Because it's very difficult to outline this passage. And in part, I think there's an important reality there that we're being shown the disarray and the disorientation of the author. He's just feeling like he's lost at sea in many ways. Doesn't know up from down or left from right. And so he's all over the place. And so is our outline this morning. We'll cover all of the verses, don't worry. But I can't just lay them neatly out for you as a picture of the disorientation of the psalmist. And again, my hope and prayer is that you will be equipped to walk alongside others, to think about the dark night of the soul rightly yourself, and to prepare if you've never experienced it before. So may the Lord use his word to that end that we might look to Christ together and know that he will carry us through. Let's look first then at our plight. Our plight. Look at verse 81 and verse 82. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? Well, I hope that you don't tire of us saying this as we continue to walk through this psalm, but it really is a disservice to all of us that we can't read this psalm in Hebrew because the extent and the depth of the psalmist's plight is thrown into our face right in these first two verses. Because the first two words in Hebrew, in verse 81 and verse 82, is the word that we translate in English, longs. My soul longs for your salvation, verse 81. My eyes long for your promise. And I think that translation, and many translators agree with me, long there is very, very weak. It sort of gets at the idea of what the psalmist is saying, but it doesn't get the degree of it, the extent of it. Because how it would be better translated is fails or ends. And so the first word that we see here in this stanza is, I'm failing. I'm coming to the end of myself. So that we could read verse 81 and 82 as saying, my soul fails or ends for your salvation. My eyes fail for your promise. Perhaps a good word picture would be that the psalmist is hanging on to the end of his rope by one finger. And he's saying, I don't know how much longer I can hold on. I've come to the end of myself. I'm at my wit's end. And I don't want to let go. But I don't know if I have the strength to continue holding on. And so right out the gate we're shown, here's the desperation. Here's the urgency that he has. He's coming to an end of himself. And so let's look then in light of that at the threefold aspect of our plight. First of all, we can see that he is weak, the psalmist is weak, and we are weak as well. Again, you notice in verses 81 and 82 
that he says, first of all, my soul fails. And then in verse 82, he says, my eyes fail. And so he's pointing to his entire person. God has created us with two parts, if you will, a body and a soul, and he's brought them together. And so what the psalmist is saying is, in the entirety of my person, I'm unraveling at the seams. I'm coming apart. Spiritually, I feel like I have no more resources left. Physically, I feel like I can't even move my body. It's a chore just to get out of bed in the morning. You ever been there? That's the experience of the psalmist here. Body and soul, he's at the end of himself. And so that's why he goes on to describe himself in verse 83, very poetically here. He says, for I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. What is he talking about? Well, what's a wineskin? A wineskin in the ancient world is like our modern day equivalent of a water bottle. Except they didn't have plastic. So how did they make them? They made them out of animal skins. And if you know anything about animal skins, they expand and contract as you especially put something like wine in them, which they often did, or even water. As it's wet, it expands. As it dries, it comes back together, and so on and so forth. And there's a shelf life on these wine skins. And what David is saying is, it's like someone on a journey put a wine skin over the fireplace to dry out so they could put wine or water in it for the next leg of the journey, and they forgot about it. And so the smoke and the heat has just destroyed this wineskin. It's shriveled up, it's blackened, there's holes in it now. Try to put wine in there, it's just going to come pouring out. Try to put water in there. What good is a wineskin like this? It has no purpose, it has no use. So you throw it away. David's saying, that's me. I'm spent. I'm useless. I feel like you should just throw me away, Lord, because I'm spent body and soul. Again, you ever been there, Christian? And so then he goes on to say to the Lord, you want to know the extent of my weakness? Listen to what he says in verse 84. He asks the question, how long must your servant endure? If you have the ESV translation there, you see there's a footnote that says in the Hebrew, it can literally be translated, how many are the days of your servant? How many more days do I have to endure this? Lord, perhaps it'd just be better if I was dead. I'm useless. I'm spent. What's the point? How many more days can I endure? You ever been there, Christian? The end of your rope, feeling the extent of your weakness, physically, spiritually, your sinfulness. It's overwhelming when you see it with the kind of clarity that the psalmist does here. And yet, that's not the end of his plight. You'd think that would be enough, but let's see that it goes to even greater depths. The second aspect of his plight is that God's promises, when he needs them most, linger. They're delayed. He doesn't understand the Lord's timeline. Because why does he say that he's wasting away here? He's wasting away. Look at verse 81 with me. My soul fails for your salvation. I'm failing, coming to an end of myself as I'm waiting for the deliverance that you promise, I hope in your word, you promise this deliverance. I would have no expectation of it if you hadn't first revealed it in your word. And yet, where is it? I need it now. And so I'm coming to an end of myself because your promise hasn't been fulfilled yet. He goes on in verse 82 to say, my eyes long for your promise. 
What's he looking for? He's scanning the horizon day after day, moment by moment, looking for God's deliverance, looking for God's comfort, and it's not coming so his eyes are failing. How much longer can I look? A hope deferred make the heart sick. And that's exactly what he's experiencing here. When will you comfort me? He knows the Lord promises comfort for those who mourn. Doesn't Jesus say that? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Where's the comfort? Why are your promises being delayed, Lord? You ever been there, Christian? As if your own weakness weren't enough to be bereft of the Lord's comfort and salvation is devastating. And yet, that's not the end of his plight. There's still a third aspect here. Third aspect, he not only feels his weakness and God's delaying in keeping his promises, but third, his enemies are triumphing over him. They have the upper hand. We get the first little hint of that in verse 84. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? He has enemies that are pursuing him, persecuting him, seeking him. They're not giving up. And they're not just playing little games. This is life and death. We see that in verse 85. He says, the insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. These are treacherous men. The language of digging pits here is the language of a hunter seeking out his prey. And he'll dig a pit. He'll set a trap so that when the prey comes by, they're ensnared and he can take the prey's life. David's saying, that's what they're doing to me. And Lord, they're treacherous because they don't live according to your law. They have no regard for you or how they're supposed to live. They do what's right in their own eyes. They're a law unto themselves. So Lord, do you see my plight? These men want my life and they're even willing to lie about me to pull me down. Look at verse 86. He says, all your commandments are sure. They persecute me with falsehood. Help me. He says, listen, they're disparaging my character, Lord. They're spreading false stories, lies about me. So that people don't trust me as the king of Israel. They're telling falsehoods. They're telling lies about me. And Lord, I've had close shaves with them. Look at verse 87. They have almost made an end of me on earth. We don't know if he's speaking spiritually or physically. Spiritually, have they so tempted him that he's almost given in and made an end of himself? Or have they just pursued him so persistently that maybe they've almost cut off his life. Either way, it's not good. And so this is David's plight. And David's enemies here are human beings who want to end his life because he's king. But he also has enemies of the flesh and the world and the devil. And so do we, don't we, brothers and sisters? And our enemies of the flesh, the world, and the devil, they don't want to play games with us. They set traps for us. They tell lies about us. And they want to kill us and destroy us. And so this is our plight. Do you understand this? This is true of us all throughout our Christian life to varying degrees. This is a, an extreme situation that the psalmist is in here. But this is true of us, our own weakness, body and soul, the fact that we're finite and sinful. And God's promises don't always happen as quickly as we think they need to be fulfilled on our timeline. And so we grow weary and we have these enemies that seek us out. So the first thing I want you to know is don't be surprised by this when you experience this in your life. Now, if you're in the midst of this, you say, well, that's somewhat helpful, but it doesn't mean that it's easy. It doesn't mean that it removes the struggle and the heartache. And you're exactly right. 
It doesn't. But a reality that I can point you to that hopefully will is the fact that Jesus knows to the nth degree exactly what this is like. Jesus knows what it's like to experience the dark night of the soul because no one experienced a darker night of the soul than Jesus did, on the cross in particular. Because what's happening there? What's Jesus doing on the cross? He doesn't have to die for his own sins because he has no sins. Whose sins is he dying for? Your sins and my sins. The sins of all the elect of God's people who ever existed, were existent at that time, or ever would exist. Because the Father has sent him in love to do that, to display his grace and his mercy. And so he's there experiencing the fullness of God's wrath for your sin and my sin. After having lived the perfect life that we failed to so that we can be counted righteous. And what does he cry out? Quoting Psalm 22, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the sense that he is an object of God's unmitigated wrath for your sin and for my sin. No one understands being forsaken by God in that way better than Jesus. And here's the thing. He's a sympathetic high priest towards us because of that. He looks at you in your suffering and says, cry out to me and know that I'm sympathetic towards you because I've been there. I get it even better than you do. And so in your plight, know that Jesus gets it even better than you do and he hears your cries with a sympathetic ear. But that's not the only thing that should be comforting. The second thing that should be comforting in the midst of this is that your struggle is actually proof that your faith is genuine. When we struggle, we think, oh, this is proof that my faith isn't genuine, that it's not real. But that's not true because by God's grace, who are you waiting on? You're waiting on him. You're waiting on God. The psalmist isn't saying if your promises are fulfilled. That's not his question. He knows the promises of God are going to be fulfilled. His question is when? How long? When will your promises be fulfilled, O Lord? And so our urgency is not in the if his promises will be fulfilled, but the when. And can I hang on (laughs) as weak as I am until those promises are actually fulfilled? And so this isn't evidence that you're not a true believer. It's just evidence that you're struggling with the Lord's timeline and wondering if you can keep hanging on. And because our plight is so great, the reality is that Understanding our complete dependence upon the Lord, we then cry out to Him. Understanding that we are His children and He is our Father and He loves us. When my son needs help or my daughter, she can't speak yet, she cries. Or he says, help, Daddy. And because I love him, I come. And so that's what the heart of a true believer does. They plead with the Lord in the face of their great plight. And so that's the second point, our plea. Our plea, let's look at that together by looking at verse 82. The psalmist says, My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? So he's pleading, interrogating the Lord, saying, Lord, when? Your word says you'll comfort me, so when's that going to happen? Because I'm about to fall. I'm at my wit's end. I've got nothing left. And your comfort is what I need, and it's what I'm looking for. So when will you come? When will you draw near and refresh my soul with your presence as you promise that you will? But he's crying out. He's turning towards the Lord. We see his pleading continue in verse 84. He says, how long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who 
persecute me. Saying, Lord, I'm not going to be able to endure much longer. And here's the thing. I know that you're just. I know that you're a just judge. Nothing misses your gaze. You see everything. And you see my enemies pursuing me. So when will you rise up and judge those who wrongly pursue and seek the life of your servant? When? He's appealing to the Lord's character. Saying, I know you'll do this, but when? And so he's pleading with the Lord. Verse 86, this plea reaches a fever pitch. Look at verse 86. All your commandments are sure. Why are your commandments sure? Because your character is sure. Why are your commandments sure? Because you are steadfast. Because you are truth itself. They persecute me with falsehood. They're liars. So help me. When will your truth prevail in their lies against me? When will the truth be made known about who I am and about who you are and your covenant relationship with me? Help me, Lord. Do you hear the desperation? Believers, sometimes in our Christian walk, we're so shot, we're so spent, we're so weak that that's all we can say. Help me. And it's a beautiful prayer. A prayer that the Lord in our desperation is pleased to answer. Because what's the situation of the psalmist here? He's walking on the path, but he feels his weakness. And so he's probably not even walking on the path. He's certainly not running on the path. I think in this instance, he's just laying on the path, looking in the right direction. But that's enough. That's enough. But he's crying, Lord, help me. And then we see him again pleading with the Lord in verse 88. He says, in your steadfast love, give me life. Again, he ends on this note of, Lord, apart from your steadfast love, apart from your character, apart from the covenant that you've graciously entered into with me, I have no life. So give me life. Not because of me, not because of my character, not because of what I've done, but because of your character and what you have done according to your love. You who are eternally, infinitely, always love. Give me life because of who you are. Brothers and sisters, what we're seeing is the response of a true believer in the face of unspeakable suffering and grief and desperation. This is what a child of God does. This is who he runs to, his Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because we know that no comfort will do but our triune God himself. And here's the thing I want you to understand. That prayer is going to sound a whole lot like complaining, isn't it? Doesn't it, as we walk through these pleas here, don't, doesn't it sound like complaining? I love what Charles Bridges, in his commentary on Psalm 119 in these particular verses, has to say about this. I find it very helpful. He says, on the one hand, to complain of God is dishonorable unbelief. It's dishonorable unbelief. To complain of God to others, to call into question God's character, to bemoan his providences, to say, He's not good because of this in my life. That's the very heart of unbelief. And it's dishonoring to your God who gave his own son for you. And whose character and timing is impeccable. And so we're not to complain of God, Charles Bridges says on the one hand. But on the other hand, he says to complain to God is the mark of his elect. Because as God's children, what do we know? He's sovereign. He's the one who has brought this into my life. And again, I'm not questioning if God will keep his promises. I'm questioning when. And so I come before him and say, when, Lord? How long, Lord? 
And I really think this is what Jesus is getting at in Luke chapter 18, verse 1. You don't have to turn there. But let me read what Luke records for us there in Luke 18, verse 1. He says, and he told them, that is, Jesus told them, a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. How do we not lose heart? By praying. When we feel like we're losing heart, what do we do? We pray. And do you remember the example that Jesus gives in that parable? He says it's kind of like a widow who's got a case to plead before an unjust judge. And so what does she do? She comes and presents his case. He turns it away, and she just does it again and again and again and again and again. He keeps turning her away until finally he gets so fed up with seeing her and having to waste his time, in his mind, dealing with her case that he just hears it, rules in her favor, and moves along. Again, he doesn't do that because he cares about her or cares about justice. It's just to get her out of his hair. And what does Jesus say is the point of that parable? He says the point of that parable is that if someone who is wicked and has no regard, no love for you as you plead your case, will eventually, because of your persistence and fervency, just give you what you want, how much more your heavenly Father, who is love, who is just, who is faithful, who is steadfast. So bring your complaints to him. Cry out to him. Be like the prophet Jeremiah, who in Jeremiah chapter 12 and verse 1 says, Righteous are you, O Lord. No question here of your character. When I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Again, he's not questioning if God will fulfill his promise. He's saying, when? I know who you are. I know what you've promised. So when, when, when? This is the heart of every true believer, of every child of God. And so as we wait, the Spirit will prompt us to cry out, How long, Lord? When, Lord, help me. Lord, keep me, Lord. And again, you see, this is not a lack of faith, this pleading with God. It's an evidence of true saving faith because we're longing for comfort, not from the things of this world that can merely distract or numb. No, we're looking for comfort from God himself and from his word. And so the true heart of every believer is like the little prayer that Bernard of Clairvaux, the Benedictine monk of long ago said when he said, I will never come away from thee without thee. I will never come away from you without you. In other words, he's saying, Lord, I'm not coming to you for comforts in the things of this world because that's not ultimately what I need. I need comfort in you. I need comfort in your word. And brothers and sisters, I hope you understand why we can plead like this, why we can complain, why we can cry out. It's because God in his love and grace and mercy, when we were strangers to him, haters of him, exiles, lost and without hope in the world. He loved us and sent his son to die for us. And why did he do that? That the communion and fellowship that we lost in the garden would be restored so that we now have communion with him, so that we can speak to him, so that we can cry out to him. Why do you have this kind of access? Because Jesus 
sent by the Father in love, gave you that access. How does he teach us to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. How does the Spirit teach us to pray? Abba, Father. And this is the great reality of what we've been restored to, communion and fellowship with the Father that we had lost in the fall. And so this is why we can plead and complain and cry out to the Lord because of the access we have to him in Jesus and by the Spirit. Now, you still may not be particularly feeling hopeful at this point. Okay, our plight is great. We have access to plea, and we will because the Spirit will prompt that in us. But are we going to be able to endure this? And that's where we get to the third point, our perseverance. By God's grace, yes, we will persevere because God will cause us to persevere. And let's look at how he's persevering in the text here. Look at verse 81. It's just shot all through here. My soul fails, comes to an end for your salvation. I hope in your word. Where's his hope? Hope is not, well, I hope it turns out okay. Hope the Dodgers win the World Series. Hope it doesn't reach 108 or whatever. No, 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 no. It's not uncertainties. It is a sure thing. My hope is in your word. I know you're going to fulfill this. I'm struggling with the timeline, but I hope in your word steadfastly. We see him persevering in verse 82 as well. He says, my eyes fail for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? He's not turning to other comforts. He's looking to the Lord. And in so doing, he's persevering. Look at verse 83. He says, for I've become like a wineskin in the smoke. I'm spent. I'm useless. I'm done. Yet, I have not forgotten your statutes. You can probably recall a time in your life when you were suffering so intensely. You couldn't listen to someone talk for longer than like five seconds at a time, right? And so I, oftentimes, a lot of truths we know about God just kind of float out of our head. Or new truths that we're learning about God or need to be reminded of can't find lodging there. And yet David is saying, Lord, I haven't forgotten your statutes. They're still there. Even as I'm being persecuted, even as I'm being confronted with my own weakness, even as I'm weary in waiting for you and your promises and your comfort, your statutes have not been forgotten by me. And more than that, he says they haven't been forsaken by me. Look at verse 87 again. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. Not only has he not forgotten them, he's meditating on them. He hasn't forsaken them. He hasn't looked at his plight and said, you know what, this whole obedience to God thing isn't really working out for me. Maybe I should try the ways of the world. Maybe I should just do what makes sense to me. Maybe I should become a law unto myself. No, he says, I have not forsaken your precepts. He's persevering. Now, here's the question. Why has he persevered? Well, he's persevered because God has preserved him. Look at verse 88. In your steadfast love, give me life. To what end? Why? That I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying the only reason that I keep the testimonies of your mouth, don't forget your statutes, but remember them. Don't forsake them, but keep them, is because according to your love, you've given me life up to this point. He's not boasting about his ability to persevere. He's saying, Lord, you are the one who has upheld me every step of the way. And it's not enough that you've done that in the past. You've got to continue to sustain me and uphold me. 
And you have up to this point. And I'm confident that you will in the future. And I'm desperate for you to in the future. It's the same idea that the psalmist has brought up elsewhere. A different psalmist. In Psalm 94 verse 18. Where he says, when I thought my foot slips. When I thought, uh oh, here I go. I'm slipping off the path. Your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. Your character, your covenant promises, your grace, your mercy. And so that's why I've endured. Charles Bridges, again, helpfully says here, this confidence of walking in the Lord's ways and persevering is indeed an encouraging seal of the Lord's love on our souls. For we never should have remembered his statutes had he not written his covenant promises upon our hearts. You get it? You're not keeping the promises of God, the statutes of God. You're not walking in accord with his word so that you can be included in the covenant. No, because you've been included in the covenant and he's written his promises on your word, that is why you are walking steadfastly. That is why you are persevering because he is preserving you. That's what he does. In closing, how about for our part? How do we persevere? How do we persevere? And there's a lot we could say here. The importance of being in corporate worship, fellowshipping with other brothers and sisters, regularly communing with the Lord through the means of grace that he has provided in prayer, scripture reading, the ordinances that he has given. But there's just one thing that I really want to highlight, and it shows up in two ways. We persevere through hope. And again, hope is not an uncertainty. It's not a wish that your heart makes when you're fast asleep. Hope is a sure and certain thing. And do you know what the New Testament calls our blessed hope? Who that person is, is Jesus. Where do your eyes need to be? The eyes of faith as you're going through the dark night of the soul on Jesus. I hope that that's already clear as we've walked through the passage. But I want to end on it to emphasize it. Our hope is in Jesus. And I just want to highlight two aspects of that hope. First of all, he's our hope in that he is our savior. He's our substitute. Again, no one faced a darker night of the soul than Jesus. And not once did his foot slip. You know your track record in suffering. I know my track record. My foot has slipped at times. I've walked off the path. I haven't walked in accord with God's word perfectly the way his law requires through suffering. And yet Jesus did that perfectly in our place so that we have his track record of law keeping. And he paid the penalty on the cross for the ways that we've fallen short so that we are forgiven, so that we are declared righteous. So he's our substitute, but he's also our example. And he comes alongside of us in this suffering and says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Here's my yoke. You know what makes my yoke easy and my burden light? It's not that it's not painful. It's not that it doesn't bring you to the end of yourself. It's that once in covenant relationship with me, that slipped on your head, my head is right there as well. And I am carrying that with you. I'm walking with you saying, I will uphold you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I've been there and I did it perfectly in your place. Look to me. Listen to me. Don't look to your weakness ultimately. Don't look at how God's promises are seeming to linger. Don't look at your enemies. Look at me. I'm with you. 
I am sustaining you. And here's the thing. Even if you die in the dark night of the soul, which the reality is in all of our lives, we're in the dark night of the soul just varies to degree, doesn't it? We're always under the shadow of the valley of death, aren't we? As Psalm 23 talks about in this life. But even when you face death, the darkest night of the soul, Jesus says, I've removed its sting on the cross. And guess what? I rose from the dead. Jesus experienced that separation of body and soul. But when he rose from the dead, they came back together. And he has a resurrected body. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, we will be resurrected as well. Do you see how comprehensive the gospel is? The salvation that Jesus has wrought for us is surely, truly, all spiritual blessings are ours in Christ in the heavenlies because he's given us himself. And so no matter how dark the night is, he is there. So look to him. And as we do so, we will sing as the saints have done for many years My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood Support me in the whelming flood when all around my soul gives way. He then is all my hope and stay.